Hello, Gorilla Americans, and welcome to Gorilla America. Today, I am bringing to you Tia Polite, a sommelier, a restaurateur, a curator of wine pairing and wine in the general sense. I'm really excited to bring this conversation to you guys. For anyone who is into wine and wants to understand more about the character of wine, how to analyze wine, and just how to enjoy it more fully. This conversation certainly brought me to a better understanding and a place of more appreciation for wine in the general sense. So with that, I bring you Tia Polite. Yeah. Totally. All right. Well, Tia Polite, uh, is that how I pronounce your name? It's actually Polite, surprisingly polite. enough. Oh, yeah. okay. It, it, it should be anything but that, but it, it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, welcome to the show. Really appreciate you coming on. Um, Tia is a sommelier um, restaurateur. Is that the correct terminology for somebody that works? I in do the... work in restaurants, yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, in high-end restaurants, I must say, at uh, Beckon. Um, and I would say that it's probably, if not the highest end restaurant in Denver, one of the highest end for sure. We met while, uh, I was dining there. Tia has a, amazing attention to detail. So uh, I was lucky enough to talk her into coming on the show. So appreciate you coming on. It's so great to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So today we were going to talk about wine, all things wine, uh, you know, maybe some history of wine, the process of being a sommelier, um, what that looks like. So uh, first, I'd kind of like to just get into your history a little bit and, you know, your process, because if you're 21 years old, you're revealed to me, you're sommelier, you're working in one of the highest end restaurants in Denver, impressive to say the least. And I would love to just sort of hear your origin story, how you ended up getting into wine and how you started studying at such a young age for something that people would probably typically think you have to be 21 to start studying, right? Right. Yeah, no, it, I mean, it really all kind of happened a, a series of small, very fortunate events. Um, and honestly, COVID was one of the big things that kind of triggered me getting into wine to the extent that I did. Mm. Um, I still attend the University of Denver and I'm in the hospitality program there. So I had an opportunity when I was 18 to start bartending because in Colorado, um, you're able to taste and spit um, any kind of form of alcohol um, under an educational purpose. And so oh. I took advantage of that. Um, I had great mentors within that program, and we have a, a small event center within the school as well. So I was bartending there for weddings, started tasting wine here and there, and then just really started reading about it and got very into it. There are, for seniors in the program, there are uh, kind of wine classes that they're able to attend. And so I would sit in, just sit in the back, start listening, um, and really kind of found this passion for it. And so um, I had a background. I was a line cook for a couple years when, uh, in Chicago where I grew up. And so I was around wine in some capacity. I was watching it happen, watching sommeliers do their thing, but obviously from the back of house perspective. Um, and I, I loved flavor always. I'm, you know, I always loved to cook and so wanted to get into restaurants in general. Um, and then you know, from food, found my way into wine. So when the pandemic happened, I went home to Chicago and basically just started diving into reading wine books. I just kind of to find an escape from everything that was going on, like the mundane routine of everything, like we probably all experienced at some point. Oh, yeah. Um, but um, in that way, I, I almost started studying without really realizing that I was studying. And I didn't have, you know, an idea of what I would be studying for. Um, and I watched the documentary Psalm that came out. I'm actually not. It might have been 2013, 2014. Um, basically detailing what a master sommelier does to study for that for the their exam through the court of the master sommeliers. And so 
kind of got aware of that program and started looking more into it. Obviously, you do have to be 21 to begin, and I was um, 19 at that point. And so I knew that I could start taking steps towards it, but not obviously get into the exam setting. Mm. Um, so I decided to, to come back to Denver when in about June of 2020 and was working at Levin Deli here in Denver. Um, the owner, um, Anthony Ligizos, he's incredible, and he is a sommelier himself. Um, oh. and also entrepreneurs. So he gave me an opportunity to help him develop a wine shop within the deli. Oh, awesome. And so I started doing that. Um, and one of our regulars happened to be Zachary Byers, the sommelier, the previous wine director and sommelier at Beckon. Okay. And so I chatted with him just kind of on a limb, asked him if he would mind if I shadowed him a couple of days at Beckon. Um, and somehow he said yes. And so <laughs> I started showing up um, really, and then just never stopped showing up. For a while, I would just come a couple of days a week while I was still working at Levin, um, and then moved full-time to Beckon um, in about December of that year. Awesome. Yeah, I was curious if Beckon was just the, the one place in Denver that is of this kind of level of attention to detail that a true sommelier would be sort of at home in, or if there were other restaurants that kind of had your attention and, and you just landed on this one. Because I, I personally haven't come across anything like the experience at Beckon. Um, well, so, I mean, it was really interesting because when I met Zach, I really didn't know anything about Beckon. Obviously, I looked into it before I, I started shadowing there, but it immediately reminded me of a lot of restaurants in Chicago because it's tasty menu style. It's, I mean, there are a couple other menus set in, in the city that do tasty menus, but ours is exclusively chef's counter tasty menu. Okay. And so it gives us a really fun opportunity for wine, obviously, because the chefs are working with 10 courses. Uh, we're able to work with a variety of wines, about a half a glass per course, and just really play around with food and wine pairing. Um, and so I had, I had really no exposure to wine in a professional setting outside of the event center and then Levin Deli choosing bottles and, and doing wine, performing wine service, essentially. It was still in the middle of COVID, so we were selling more bottles than we were actually serving within the restaurant. Um, but at, back in, I really just kind of started learning first how to back weight, you know, learning how the restaurant functioned. At that point, we were completely outside. Um, but mm. then once we moved inside, you were, you were noticing kind of the attention to detail. It's such a small space. And so oh, yeah. it's so essential that each of us is really careful with our movements and um, that we're making sure our guests are feeling comfortable, even though they are sitting next to, you know, 16 other people at the counter. Um, and I, it was funny when I first started there, I realized like I would come home and my like movements would be so much more delicate because I was just so used to kind of acting that way. And then it became a lot more natural, but I would move around my house differently after training at Beckon. It was really interesting because I mean, the leadership is incredible and we really are all, we hold ourselves to a pretty ridiculously high standard in terms of service procedures. And then also you know, the hospitality behind it. Like we really want people to feel comfortable, even though it is a fine dining setting. Makes total sense. Yeah. And I mean, the attention to detail really seems to be a core tenet of being a sommelier as well, right? Like you, I watched the movie Psalm that you just mentioned oh, as a fun, part yeah. of my homework for this conversation. <laughs> and I was struck by how intense the amount of information that you guys have to retain about wine is. And I mean, I know that they were in that movie for the folks that have not watched it. And they're going through the, what's the school again? The Court of the Master Somalis. Right. The Court of the Master Somalis, which is like the top of the top for wine, correct? And 
Yeah, so, you typically find, I mean, so there are two different paths that you can really go with it. There's the WSET, which I would say is more, um, you, you have to write a lot of essays in terms of the tests. The tests are very different. That is more geared towards people who are into wine in research formats or distributors um, or like very, very serious enthusiasts, I would say, mm. are more in that. And then restaurant people are, are kind of geared towards the court of the master some ways because there is a service component of the exam. So it, it really, I think you actually do have to be working in a restaurant to qualify to take the exams, some oh. of the higher level exams, especially. Interesting. Yeah, I was I was curious if there were different schools and if they were all competing with one another, but it sounds like basically two different. No, but. it's all love all around. I mean, we all <laughs> we all nerd out about the same things at the end of the day. Right. Well, I mean, so the level of intensity of the things that were learned, right? It's like regionality of wines, being able to identify what year of a wine and the you know, the region, the specific region within Italy that it hearkened from, you know, really a high intensity level of detail on just things that could be extracted from the flavor of the wine, right? And right. So, I mean, I'd love to hear about the process of someone, it's 19 years old, they're getting into this. How do you start going about figuring out how to use your palate in this way? Because that seems like a completely foreign thing to me, me and probably most people. Yeah, and the so I had I was very fortunate to have that mentor within the event center that I was working at who did this exercise with me that I would recommend to really anyone getting into wine for the first time, and it's an exercise to understand wine structure. So she basically lined up um, a shot of vodka. Um, lemon juice mixed, diluted with a little bit of water, uh, basically simple syrup, so sugar diluted with water, um, and then very, very strong black tea. Mm. And so kind of going through all of these, you start with a shot of vodka. That's to understand how alcohol will be perceived on your palate at a very high level. <laughs> and so, I mean, you know, I'm sure a lot of people listening have taken shots before. I hope you hadn't thought too much about it in the past, but... <laughs> potentially next time you do to see kind of how far down your throat into your stomach you can feel like that warming sensation. That's um, the base of really identifying alcohol level in wine. And alcohol level from there, you once you kind of have this knowledge of, okay, warmer climates are going to ripen grapes more, right? So you get more sugar content in those grapes that it's going to be produced or turned into higher alcohol levels. And mm -hmm. so you know if, there, if there's a certain level of alcohol that you perceive in a wine that it's from a warmer climate. And that narrows things down in terms of just determining, you know, where this wine is coming from, if you're blind tasting it. Sure. Um, and then um, I forgot what I said next. I guess going into the lemon juice diluted with water, that would be acidity. And so you think of like, if, if you like even imagine biting into like a slice of lemon, your mouth is already starting to water, right? It's, right. That's the effect. And so determining acid in wine is very important. And usually cooler climates are able to produce higher levels of acid in wine. Mm. And so when you're perceiving a glass, and certain varietals as well, certain grapes produce higher levels of acid. And so that helps us narrow it down in terms of wine tasting. That makes um, sense. And I particularly love high acid wines. I think they're very refreshing, especially along with food. You want to keep going back to them. Um, and it's important, especially in the world of sweet wines, that they have very high acidity so that they're not just, you know, one-toned. And they're not just like kind of sitting on your palate in a, in a not attractive way. It makes sense. So what would be a good example of a high acidity wine that people are generally aware of? Riesling is a great one. Riesling mm. is the highest acid white grape that is out there. So um, that is 
honestly the reason, usually in this, in the United States, especially we think of Riesling as always being sweet. Um, and sure. about 75% of what's coming out of Germany, which is a, a very big region for producing Riesling, is actually dry. And so you don't really perceive sugar. But the ones that do have a little bit of sugar um, that they essentially leave behind, they stop fermentation to a point where you have a little bit of sugar left in the wine. It's, it's so it's palatable because the <laughs> acid is so high. And so that's why that classically is, is the way that the kind of Riesling comes about. You see a lot of off-dry versions is what they call them, but just like a little hint of residual sugar. Interesting. Very interesting. So we do have a wine in front of us here today. We do, um, yes. And I have known nothing about this wine except that I think we tasted it while we were at uh, Beckin. And so excited to sort of hear about this and how it ties into the character of wine as we're having this conversation. So if you wouldn't mind just introducing us to this wine, what it is, and the, its character and all that, that'd be awesome. Absolutely. So we're drinking... Um, a wine from, the label is called Datera Viticoloris, um, and it's run by a woman named Laura Lorenzo. She um, works out of Galicia, Spain. Um, she's in a region specifically called Ribera Sacra, which is kind of more eastern within the region, but you're overall, we're situated right above Portugal here. So there are very coastal kind of regions within this larger region, um, but also more regions inland. And um, generally, the region has some pretty steep, terraced, very rocky soil. So it's pretty hard to farm. Mm. Um, and so requires a lot of love. I think what, how I explained it to you guys when you came in was that, so this woman, she, she essentially came into the region. She's, she got into wine when she was 16. So she has me beat by very, a couple of years here. <laughs> um, she decided she wanted to be a sommelier. She ended up enrolling in a, in a kind of program for that and then became a winemaker, um, had, you know, worked under a couple of different people around the world and then came back to her home region here. Um, and she's working with Mencia, which is a, a kind of a lighter red varietal that's very typical of the region. And it's, it comes across a lot like Pinot Noir or Gamay. Um, and so it would definitely be for a, a Pinot Noir drinker because it's, it's soft, it's very vibrant, it's red-fruited. It has a lot of brightness to it mm. um, and minerality too. Like, you know, soil and wine is a, a whole long conversation, um, but she works on some pretty granitic soils. So it helps keep the vines cold. Um, and so you're able to get a lot of freshness and acidity. It helps preserve that um, in the wine. And so it comes across as, as very light. It's a wine that could go from, you know, it could pair with a lot of seafood. It could also pair with stewed meats. It's very versatile in that way. Okay, fantastic. I mean, I think maybe we should taste it. But maybe before we do, you could explain to uh, someone that is totally new to wine what it is that we're looking for, right? Like, how do we taste it properly? Um, do we smell it first? Do we roll it around on our tongue? What's the, what's the process, and, and how do we identify what we're looking at? Yeah, so I'll kind of give you how the Court of the Master Sommeliers trains um, us to do this. And the first thing you're going to do is, um, well, you, you should really have a kind of a white sheet of paper down because it's easier to look at the color that way. Hmm. Um, and so if you take your notebook and, and look there, um, essentially you're going to look at you're going to look at color. You're going to look in the core of of kind of the color that you see there. Okay. And then you're gonna look out to the rim and see what that color is and see if there is significant variation or if it all feels like the same color. These are all things that, that help us determine the varietal. Okay. Um, some varietals, you know, are, first of all, we also look at, at clarity. How can you read through it? Can you see things that are on the page potentially? Okay. Um, and that would mean that it's potentially a lighter skin varietal instead of something that's thicker skin and get, having a lot of concentration and depth, like Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot are great examples of this. They are, you cannot read through them. 
Okay. Um, but something like Pinot Noir Gamay, you can um, because they're, they're thinner, thinner skin. And so, um, yeah, you know, that's the first thing to look at. And then I would say, you know, above all, it's, more, it's most important that you do the same thing every time. So whatever your process is with it, it doesn't have to be extremely extensive. But to understand wine, when I f- was first getting into it during the early parts of COVID, I was, t- you know, keeping a journal and I ended up filling up like 60 or 70 pages. Anything that I was drinking um, in terms of wine, I was writing down in the exact same way. Like I would, I would look at sight first. I would look at the color, see if there's any rim variation. I would basically go through the, the nose. Um, and I think it's really important. You know, you see some ways do this and it's like, how do they do this? This is so ridiculous. Like they're throwing <laughs> out like freshly cut grass and like, you know, all these things. But it really, in our head, what's, ha- what's going on is that I think, especially when you're looking at the nose and the palate, we're going through, okay, first, if I'm smelling it, I'm like, what red fruits do I smell? Now, what blue fruits do I smell? What black fruits do I smell? And then I look, do I smell any, any oak presence? Am I getting anything like vanilla, like baking spice, all of these factors that oak aging delivers to wine? And then I'm looking at florals and herbs and in these different categories of like spices. And so when you narrow it down that way, you're able to get a lot more specific with the things that you're calling out. And then fruit character is really important. I would say just to highlight fruit, if I'm, you know, smelling this potentially. So I'm smelling a lot of like red cherry and I'm getting like tart red cherry. Mm. I'm not getting like baked cherry. I'm not getting cherry pie. I'm not getting even like ripe on the vine cherry. I'm getting something that is tart and fresh. It like you feel, I, smelling this, I feel like it's going to have bright acidity even before I taste it. I can smell that, yeah. Not to the nuance that you're describing, probably. But yes, that's awesome. Okay. Yeah. So I would look up, honestly, for anyone just hoping to get into this on a a level of of any kind, really, look up the Court of the Master Sommelier's tasting grid. Um, And they'll basically, there's an actual grid um, where it has all these things that I'm talking about. And so you see, like, red fruits, and it gives a couple examples, and then blue fruits, black fruits, it goes through. So I would say... Go through that to, to an extent and just see what you're able to find. See how deep you're able to go with it. It's, it's a fun exercise in that way because it makes it a lot less intimidating. Because once you categorize it, it's like you, if you focus on things so specifically, you're able to pull out more and then extract more information also about the wines. That makes a lot of sense. It, it, there is a, some, a study I was reading where once you have a word that describes a thing, you're much more likely to be able to identify it. Um, and it sounds kind of like that in a way, right? Where you're saying, oh, there's a name to this. There's a process to this. And here you can ex- now extract that information a little bit more readily. So, okay. Um, so what's next in the process? Um, of of tasting, I, I would taste the wine then. So first thing I'm going to do is basically confirm what I potentially smelled in the wine. So I'll go through, if I smell tart cherry, am I kind of tasting that same tart cherry or is it riper on the palate? Um, Am I getting all of the same kind of fruit components that I did on the nose on the palate or are more things that are earth-driven coming out? Mm. Um, Something that I think is, it's not true all of the time, but is is a good kind of tell of old world versus new world, we kind of like hear those terminal that terminology thrown around a little bit. Old world is essentially Europe. New world is, is every other wine region. Um, old world wines tend to have earth as a more prominent component in the wine than fruit. Mm. That tends to dominate, and it of course you know it's it's not all the time. But 
Um, if I'm looking at, I think Pinot Noir is a great example of this. If I'm looking at Russian River Valley Pinot Noir versus Burgundy Pinot Noir in the Russian River Valley, I'm going to get a lot of really ripe, bright fruit as kind of the prominence in the wine. That's going to dominate and likely higher alcohol levels. In Burgundy, it's going to be like turned earth, uh, mushroominess. You're going to get all of these more tertiary things that potentially are there in a Russian River Valley expression of Pinot Noir, but are not dominant. And it, it honestly it tells a lot about our different drinking cultures to look at those two things. Because in Europe, the wines are meant to be on the table with food. They Wine and food, they, those kind of came up together mm. in European wine regions. In the New World, we cultivated the vine a lot later in, in our history. And we're, I mean, we're newer regions. That's why we're called the New World. And so <laughs> we, in terms of the United States specifically, we tend to drink alcohol on its own instead of on the table with food all the time. You know, I, yeah. people have wine with dinner, but we're not pairing wine to the same extent because we don't have as much regionality with dishes, right? And so right. in the old world, like if, the reason why we and at Beckon specifically work with a lot of European wines, we definitely work with wines from the New World as well, but we tend towards more European wines because we're, they're meant to be alongside food. And so we'll look and see what the chefs are doing with the dishes and say, do any of these flavors or any of these components have kind of history in different regions? And then we might look to those regions for wine because those things are made to be together. Very so fascinating. It's, it's not like, you know, obviously it, it, it doesn't work every single time, but it's a good place to go if we're not thinking of anything else. That makes sense. So now in my, you know, ignorant state of mind, I'm thinking climate has to do with flavor, maybe soil type, but it, the way that you're talking about it is that there's also a style component perhaps that builds on this flavor where people are cultivating the wine in such a way that it pairs well with a certain type of food subset. Is that an accurate understanding? Right. I mean, so, I mean, people were drinking these wines and, you know, having their cuisine alongside and they were kind of going off of each other. And it's, it's not necessarily one was following the other, but they were coming up together. And, and Italy is a great example of like, I think you, there, Italy feels like 10 countries within one in terms of <laughs> winemaking. There are so many different subregions that have so many different sub cuisines as well. And I recently had the opportunity to travel to Piedmont. And that is where Nebbiolo is, is the grape, the red grape to be. Okay. Um, Nebbiolo has very, very high acidity, very, very high tannin. And the tannic component, which in that kind of when we were going back to like the tasting example of the, the black tea would be the tannin here. It's think of like after you eat a saltine. Like, that's how your mouth feels after you drink Nebbiolo. Okay. <laughs> and it, it, it dries your mouth out to a point where, like, you don't want to drink this on its own. You want something on the side. And it also happens to have a lot of really beautiful and delicate flavors and goes really well with truffle because there are white truffles that are grown all in the region. Mm. And so those are things that just, like, it's, it's magical in a way where it, it honestly, I have a hard time explaining why they do go together in that way. But because those things did come up together... It just, it works. What comes up together goes together. What grows huh? together goes together is the, is the classic. <laughs> All right. Well, awesome. So when we taste this, am I supposed to roll it around on my tongue? Am I supposed to swish it around? Is there a, like kind of a proper technique for tasting? So it, it depends on what you're looking for. So I would pace, I would kind of first, you, you definitely want to have like a, a glass on the side to spit into when you're analyzing like wine in general, just so also first you're not getting like extremely drunk when you're analyzing an entire glass <laughs> or bottle or whatever you end up doing. But 
Um, and I think it's important to say like there's there are times where you want to analyze wine and times where you just want to drink it and not think about it. So if we're saying that we're in this time where we're trying to analyze it, what I would first do is confirm the fruit, confirm all of the flavor components of it, and then look at structure. So I'm basically, in terms of uh, testing acidity, I would kind of swish it around across my tongue in the front of my mouth and then spit it out and then see how much my mouth waters. And okay. then that would be my, my kind of acidity gauge of like how much that wine makes my mouth water. And, and for that, you really do have to taste a lot of different things. You have to taste low acid wines to high acid wines. And I would say if you're doing that for, for white wine, a really great exercise is um, pulling something like uh, Marsan and Roussan. Um, you can find this kind of all across southern France. If you go to a wine shop and ask them if they have a, a blend of Marsan and Roussan or just, you know, um, each of those varietals on their own, they're both very low acid. And then pull a, a Riesling from the Mosul Valley of Germany. These two are going to make your mouth do completely different things. <laughs> and I think it, it's great to notice that because then you, and when I was taking my, my second exam, I had a tasting, uh, a tasting test at eight in the morning. So I got up at six and drank Riesling to, to <laughs> gauge high acid. I am not even kidding. Um, and it was my way of like going in like, okay, this is where high acidity is. And now that I know that, when I'm tasting this flight of four wines, I can gauge based on it. Sure. It's like, that's my baseline of super high acidity and everything is on a scale from there right. uh, downward. Interesting. Right. Um, and in terms of kind of following, so I, you want to go through all the structural components. Red wine pretty much exclusively is always going to be dry. And I think dry is something that in the restaurant I hear thrown around a lot. People say they like, I want a dry red wine, even though, you know, all red wine is actually dry. Dry just is the opposite of sweet which mm -hmm. makes absolutely no sense because it's all liquid. But that is the terminology <laughs> for dry. Dry is, means there is no perceptible sweetness in the wine. And I think when I, when I hear someone say that, I, I know that they don't want something fruity because we typically mm -hmm. think if we're, you know, we're smelling this and say this wine had a lot of like ripe fruit components or baked fruit components, we think of sweetness. So we associate that, we say, okay, that wine is sweet, right? Because we're sure. smelling and tasting all of these like quote unquote sweet things. <laughs> but it's not actually, it doesn't actually signify that there is residual sugar in the wine. Mm, fascinating. So really what you're tasting are, is it the tannins that are giving it that flavor or is there some other, because this is a terminology thing that I'm just not certain on with wine. All these various flavors, are, are they, is there a, some chemical component that's giving them that flavor? Because it's not really, like if you're tasting like some, odd flavor like a piece of rubber in your wine right like right. it's the psalms <laughs> right. uh, in that movie we're talking about mm -hmm. that you, you know uh, clearly there's no rubber in your your wine but that right. came from some fermentation process and then the flavor component that's left behind is called what well so yeah it, it, you're exactly right that it's all just kind of these chemical reactions that are happening with the wine as a result of potentially climate location and the fermentation, the winemaking process. Like there's a reason why, you know, certain forms of Chardonnay taste like they're like buttery, mm. right? Like they they went through this process called malolactic fermentation where the malic acid, what we think of as like, think of like green apple acid turns into lactic acid, which is like milk acid. So it, ha it actually affects the wine texturally and makes us kind of feel like the wine is potentially taste or smells like buttered popcorn or has all of these like really like kind of warm components to them. And so there are certain chemical reactions in that way, but in terms of the specific descriptors, you know, like 
I wouldn't read too much into them. I think different people perceive wines very differently and you're able to kind of pull whatever you want out. Sometimes too, you see some have this kind of, it almost seems like this list of descriptors is just at the ready. And that's because they've tasted this potentially what they think is this wine so many times that they'll go through and they'll look for those things Mm. very specifically. So if I think a wine is like, if I think something is Pinot Noir, I'm going to say potentially, I'm going to look into the red fruited category of things more specifically and focus in on that because, you know, you can sometimes get blue and black fruits in Pinot Noir, but red fruit is a big signifier that it is that varietal. Mm. And so, you know, in addition to these chemical reactions, the winemaking does have a lot of effect on it. And the the location, like, and soil delivers a lot of things. It mostly affects structure in terms of how much a wine is able to retain acidity um, versus not. Or, you know, I... In certain regions that are very coastal, for example, I think I, we might have talked about this at the restaurant, you have these soils that are influenced by the sea over kind of thousands of years, right? So you're getting kind of this, almost like this saltiness because the soils have come from the sea. Sure, yeah. So it's uptaking the flavor of the soil in a way, right? right. And there's absolutely no, like there's nothing that proves that this is true. That soil, <laughs> like you, like minerality in wine is a really great example of just this ambiguous term that we kind of throw around here and there and that we're not really sure exactly where it does come from. And it might be part of this romantic idea, but I tend to find minerality really fascinating in wine and certain soil types. Once I taste the wine and then I look into it and find out that these are the soils, like you kind of start to you kind of start to, to find these things in the wine that potentially distinguish them from others. Like red clay, if you have very iron-rich soils, those minerals are being delivered to the vine, potentially creating one thing or another. But, yeah. Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, we are influenced by our environment. You know, plants are certainly influenced by their environment. So it, it would be shocking if it uh, weren't the case. So I, I say we... Uh, do Let's this taste tasting it. part, yeah, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, so we don't have to spit it out at all, but um, see if you can kind of swish it around the, the front and like over your tongue and and see what kind of acidity you can perceive on this wine. Okay. Let's, let's start with acidity. <clears throat> I would say it seems very acidic. It's pretty up there. I would say I would like, so we have a scale of like low to high and you can do like a medium plus. I would say this is like medium plus acidity. Okay. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's very, I mean, I don't have the language to describe it, but it's very forward with that acidity for, for me. I mean, I, I noticed it kind of, you know, as I swallowed, it also kind of came up into my nose a little bit. Um, okay, so I would honestly, I would focus more about what's happening in your mouth, actually, with the acidity. So, oh, like, okay. is is your mouth filling with, like, spit? Yes. Yeah. So that's how we know. It's like, okay, there is some serious acidity going on. <laughs> um, now let's look at alcohol. Okay. So alcohol, you might hear kind of, like, if you swirl the, gla- swirl the wine in the glass, you can, like, see legs. I would focus less on the legs. They are, they signify a body, so that could mean sugar or alcohol. So it gets a little bit confusing in that way to analyze. So... I would say let's just just take a small sip and just notice how far down your throat into your stomach you feel like that warming sensation. Okay. I would say it doesn't 
feel like it's going deep into my stomach, but I could maybe feel it down and like like mid chest. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'd agree with that. So it's not, we know that it's not crazy high acid. Um, another trick, um, our, the Zachary Byers, our, our previous wine director at Beckon, he would tell me like basically hold, this is kind of a, a hard thing. So I definitely wouldn't recommend doing this, but it's kind of, it definitely you, when you have a high alcohol wine, you know exactly what's going on. He would hold it at the front of his mouth and then suck in air and see if it made him start like coughing. Interesting. Yeah. Cause you would, cause the, the alcohol kind of, and then travels back to your throat and it like almost hurts a little bit oh. and so that's how he would, he would tell alcohol um sometimes i prefer swallowing it and just to kind of see um, sure. how far down you feel it but both are great ways to do it um next let's look at so sugar in wine is is really interesting and i think it's important to talk about because now that we know sweet and dry are at the opposite ends of spectrums and that virtually all red wine is fermented dry um let's let's see what it looks like in the glass so sugar think of it as like skim milk to heavy cream okay. in terms of appearance in the glass. When you have a sweet wine, it's going to move around much more slowly in the glass. Okay. It's going to feel more viscous. Um, and when you have a wine that's dry, it's going to be, it's going to move around faster. Sure. And so obviously we have red wine and this would be how I usually tell people to look for this is like, you know, pull a dry Riesling versus a off dry Riesling or even pull a sweet wine, like pull something like Sauterne or Tokai and throw that around the glass, and it it, it visibly is, like, very slow moving. Mm. You see that it just, it doesn't, like, set, it settles a lot quicker than if you were, or excuse me, it settles a lot more slowly than if you were to kind of swirl around a dry wine. Okay. So ours is dry, um, and we're just going to kind of swirl it around. This is, this is a good example. So it's going to, you know, come back down very quickly here. It's, it moves fast. It moves like skim milk in the glass. Yeah. No, I, I see that. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Where, what would be on the opposite end of the spectrum of Riesling? Um, I mean, any any sweet wine. So like red wine, there's, I wouldn't look to red wine to, to gauge sweetness and to do this exercise. Um, look at an off dry Riesling um, or um, you can do Shannon Blanc is actually a great one. There, There's a style called Molu which is the sweetest that they make in, in the appellation of Vouvray specifically. And so that will be very slow moving. That will have kind of a, a very perceivable level of residual sugar. Okay. Um, so I would look for that or go to your wine shop. I think even off dry Riesling is a great example and you can drink it and it, along with food, it can still be on the table with things. And, you know, even though it's not dry, it still is a very fun food pairing wine. Interesting. So I guess uh, maybe for me, it seems like what's happening is it's almost a syrupiness factor, right? Yeah. More sugar, the more syrupiness. And so that ties to how sweet a wine is. And okay. Absolutely. Awesome. And sugar in wine, the how it gets there, they don't just add it at the end. So you have essentially the process of fermentation is, is important to understanding like how sugar does end up in wine. And, and like I was talking about Riesling a little bit earlier, um, basically what they would do, so you start fermentation, you have just grape juice and then you have yeast that either occurs naturally or they add cultivated yeast. Um, and that yeast starts turning that sugar into ethanol. Okay. And so it starts doing it, starts doing it. They can stop it at a certain point, either by cooling it down to a very, very low temperature or by adding a little bit of sulfur. Mm. And so at that point, fermentation will stop and there will, there will still be natural sugar left in that original grape juice. Sure. And so that wine, they can control exactly when they want to stop it and what level of residual sugar they want to have in the wine. 
Makes sense. And so the amount of residual sugar does not define the type of wine you're dealing with, just how dry versus sweet it is, correct? Exactly. Yeah. So in Riesling, I mean, in terms of German Riesling, it's so cold in Germany. So the acid is just through the roof. It's already through the roof with the grape Riesling. Um, and it just, in that context, is even more so. And so, you know, it's, it's abrasive when it's fermented completely dry, when there's no sugar to help balance out that acidity. And so that's why that's left in there. Makes and the winemakers make that choice. Okay. Yeah. And so do the, it sounds like regionally there, you've got these standard kind of mechanisms that are used for the wine that's grown there. Um, is that how Psalms were able to say, oh, it's this part of Germany in the year 20-whatever? <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Um, well, so, I mean, Germany is a good example there. I mean, if we're looking at Riesling, regionally like there are very different soil types all around Germany that kind of deliver a different style and it and it is really hard to tell you have to have a lot of theory and knowledge to gauge that but we'll perceive differences in the fruit character um, we'll perceive different forms of minerality in that wine Rieslings have very kind of bright minerality to them and I, I think um, yeah that kind of this just the very very minute differences can cue you into different regions and also once you learn the producers too producers have such a big influence on how a wine ends up turning out because they're making the wine and mm. so if we're if we know potentially like producers in the Mosul um, you know the climate is also different so potentially their their styles I perceive it as a little bit more light and feathery you get a little bit you tend to see more of kind of residual sugar usage this is obviously not across the board but the Mosul style to me just feels like lighter mm, makes sense okay so I, I want to return a, a little bit to your story, uh, and I appreciate you filling us in on the, the details of this, but so you told me that you come from a big Greek family. Is, yes. is that accurate? <laughs> it is. Um, and, you know, your history in, in food, it really does seem just from the story you're telling that having a refined palate in food and being able to identify flavor is probably key to being able to really work with wine effectively. Would that be a correct understanding? It is. And I think you can definitely train yourself to do it. Like I was telling you, I mean, it's obviously not easy um, to get, you know, get through these tests, get to these levels, but I think anyone could do it if you really put your mind to it. Cause you don't, you don't, you don't have to be a super taster. You don't have to have these like innate abilities. Mm. You just have to really focus in and try to perceive flavor in a, you know, looking at it very, in almost like a scientific way. Like you have to see, kind of dive in. And I grew I mean, I grew up, you know, in this big family, we would, food was, you know, a central part of a lot of events growing up. Greek Easter, if anyone's ever been to a Greek Easter celebration, um, you should definitely go if you I haven't. I have it, but I'm down. Um, it's amazing. <laughs> Usually there's like lamb roasting on a spit somewhere. Um, it's, we basically go, it's right after Lent. And so we've been basically going vegan for 40 days. And then you have this big celebration where you're able to eat meat and dairy again. Mm. Um, and it's, it always, I always cook for this and we usually do lamb. Um, there's a soup called Avno Lemino soup. That's just like, it just is all these kind of big format things that the most important is that we're all together, you know, and we're, you know, all my family fortunately was surrounding the Chicagoland area. And so, um, we would spend all of these great kind of large events together. And so, yeah, why, I mean, wine was actually never really a part of it, surprisingly enough. Mm. Um, my, my family, my dad was a little bit into wine. He's gotten into it a lot more recently um, <laughs> since I have. He's, Thanks to his daughter. A, we've had a lot of fun together just like, and cooking for him too. And he's at a point in his career where he's able to spend more time cooking and actually like connecting to that where he didn't before. 
And so he drank a lot of Zinfandel. I would kind of like taste growing up a little bit, but I wasn't really analyzing wine, obviously, or even really getting exposure to a, a wide variety of wine. So, you know, I, I didn't know that all of this was out there. And so when I started tasting things that were just so different, it was, it was very intriguing. Um, and I think yeah. for me, the most important thing is to pick wines that go along with whatever you are eating, because that just helps cultivate the most, you know, fun event, because that's how that's supposed to be. You know, you're supposed to have these beverages alongside food that are helping each thing feel like they're in their highest form. And so that's what I love doing. Makes total sense. Now, <clears throat> it seems like something that is deep in the Psalm culture is this pairing of food and wine. And and how would someone that wants to get into that process, right? What, do you understand a little bit about the flavor profiles of wine and, and whatnot? How would you then say, oh, this this wine would be good with this dish? And, and what's the process of coming up with these pairings? Yeah, I think, I mean, there's there are a couple things to look at. First, you look at the weight of the dish. So is it, you know, is it a stewed meat dish? Or is, is it very heavy? Is it very rich and very flavorful? Or is it something delicate like sashimi? Hmm. And those things determine what the kind of body, what body of wine you want to pair along with. And so we were talking about structure. Like if you have something that is ex extremely stewed and rich, you're going to want a wine that has the flavor and the, and the power and the body, potentially the alcohol, the tannin to stand up to it. Hmm. Um, and so something like Cabernet Sauvignon from the new world, from California would do that because it's elevated in alcohol. So you kind of have to understand like regionally what, the different structure is in these in these wines in order to, to, to determine you know what's going to go along with the courses that have that same structure almost, and so there are things you can either kind of go matching or contrasting in terms of wine pairings. Okay. Um, and so um, I think like a really cool one in terms of matching you know would be like I with lamb. So what I grew up eating, um, Northern Rhone Syrah that is. It is rich and it's dark fruited and you have a lot of concentration. The tannins aren't crazy high, but there's a lot of spice to the wine. You get pepperiness and smokiness and meatiness to it. And all of that contributes to the course in a lot of great ways. Like it helps, you know, sometimes lamb can have that, or lamb can have that kind of gaminess. Um, right. That spice adds so much to that and it makes it a really cool experience. And so that's one of my favorite pairings out there. So you'll look at you know, first structure and then look at the flavors. Do you want to, you know, pull something out of the dish that's already there or do you want to add something mm. with the wine? So those are, those are, those are two things that we look at at Beckon in terms of choosing wines for these pairings. We look at structure and then we look at flavors because they work with so many. So we don't, I think right now is a cool example too, like this, men, this Mencia that we're drinking right now, we paired with a squab dish that has a lot of delicacy in terms of the flavors. And so we, this wine, even though it is vibrant and it has a lot of energy, it's not getting in the way of that dish. It's still letting those flavors shine and it's, it's adding things to the experience, but it's not taking away. I think that's the biggest thing. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. I mean, you want something that, as you said, stands up to the flavor. It's not getting overwhelmed by the food, but you don't want to overwhelm the food with the wine. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm getting there on some basics. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, there's so much to think about. And obviously everyone pairs differently. And I, I really love to go experience pairing menus because you get to see the creativity of everyone involved, the chefs and the sommeliers, and just to see like, like I love shocking people with, with flavor. I think that's so fun. And even outside of wine, like with, you know, sake, with beer, these different pairings that just are so, it just, it, people have them and they're like, wow. 
Like, I didn't know the food could taste like this, and I didn't know this wine could taste like this. I mean, that's the way I felt when I was dining there. Good. It was definitely an uh, uh, experience of flavors. And, and the pairing was amazing. You know, the, the various flavor combinations were definitely accentuated um, with the wine. You know, it's like if you just ate the food, the food was amazing unto itself. But then when you're, you know, taking sips of the wine and then taking a bite of the food, it's like both popped more, which, you know, it seems like, all right, we've got, we're dealing with masters here that know how to actually do this. <laughs> well, that's what we're there for. You know, that's our whole purpose. So I would say use your sommeliers, you know, use your, your wine shop workers because they know so much about all of these things that like, you know, Generally, the population does not have the time to put into, you know, understanding regions and soil types, all of this stuff that's so detailed that we are very much nerds about because it kind of is our job to be nerds about them. <laughs> um, if you're, you know, if you're cooking something, just, you know, the most important thing is to know exactly what to ask for and know how to describe your own tastes because then the sommelier can take it from there. You don't have to know producers. You don't have to know regions. You just have to know hey, I had this wine and I realized that it's higher alcohol or higher in tannin and I really liked that or I really didn't like that. Mm. And then be able to say like, I'll, you know, I'll go to, to, to a restaurant and be like, hey, well, first I, I'll understand what I'm eating and then probably say, say like, hey, I want something that's with bright acidity that has, you know, kind of a lot of minerality to it. If I'm having like a whole grilled fish, for example, I'm like, you know, I probably want something coastal. What do you guys have that's, that you're excited about that's really fun? like in terms of wine, like, cause I know that those things kind of go into it, but honestly, I would just ask more, more so like let the sommelier kind of take it from whatever you're eating. Just say, Hey, I want something that's really cool with this. And they, okay. they will guarantee find you something awesome. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm down to lean on sommeliers all day long. Um, so it's something that you mentioned about diet, and I, I've had this sort of question in my mind about sommeliers and if they're, you know, working with their diet in order to heighten their ability to taste, because it seems like for me, I've been working on this really strict diet recently, and it's very restrictive. A lot of spices are actually out. And ever since I took on this diet, I feel like my palate has improved dramatically because I'm not accosting it with so much salt and all these various, you know, spices constantly. Oh, interesting. Um, and so in, in the world of psalms, is that their correct terminology? Yeah, psalms? yeah, you can call yeah, psalms, sommeliers, whatever. <laughs> okay, in the world of psalms, are, are people, you know, saying, okay, well, you know, I'd want to eat a vegetarian diet for a period of time to be able to identify this, that, or the other thing more, or is it just kind of... Uh, free-for-all when it comes to dietary stuff? I think I think that varies person to person. There's a book called Cork Dork, and it was this, um, I believe she was a journalist that ended up trying to write about the process of, you know, being a sommelier, going through the, the testing, the exams, and she actually did go through the Court of the Master certified exam. And so mm. she writes about it and her whole process leading up to it of all of these things that she's read about doing to try to heighten your flavor, all of those things that you were talking about. And so she would like basically not brush her teeth with toothpaste, like a significant amount of toothpaste. I think she would, she stopped drinking coffee. It was, it was all of, all of these kind of prominent flavors she would try to cut out in order to better heighten her senses. Um, I, I did not do any of that um, leading up to my exam, my tasting exam. You're like, not necessary for me. <laughs> I, I love flavor. I love spices. Like I, I don't think I could cut that out even, and I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't want to. Even though this is something that I do professionally, I feel like I'm able to detect flavor at a level that I'm, I feel good about that I don't think 
you you need to do all of this to I mean some people potentially do to lead up to the exams but I think it's just more about getting exposure to different wines and flavors and to see these things in unique contexts that's what helps you remember you know that if you're especially because all of this would be helping blind tasting specifically sure and so the blind tasting exam is really just all about going through the, the process that you're potentially practicing of, you know, analyzing the color, then analyzing the nose, then the palate, then making initial and final conclusions. It's all, that's all they're testing you on, really. Okay. And so it's, yeah, for me, it was, it was really more just about going and seeing as many wines as I could and getting exposure to blind tasting. And, um, you know, Zach Byers and, and our current wine director, Jenica Flippo, she, helped me so much. Both of them helped me so much blind taste because they would line up flights for me before I even got into work. And I would show up and I would go through them and then I would go and do my thing. So (laughs) it was incredible. That's great. So you've you've talked a little bit about this process, right? The the Court of the Master Sommelier testing. And there's a bunch of different levels to that, right? Um, And so you've been through the first two, is that accurate? The first two. So the first one is the introductory exam. It's, I believe, 70 question, multiple choice. Um, you usually do it in person that, you know, the day before you were attending uh, basically a, an entire day of sessions led by master sommeliers and advanced sommeliers who were um, just kind of running you through basically like an inch deep of the important wine regions around the world. You were blind tasting a little bit. And then on the exam, it was just multiple choice. Okay. Um, and on the second exam so the the second one is the certified exam that one is in person and it's uh three different sections so you do tasting you do written multiple choice theory and then you do a service examination so service is think of kind of like a mock restaurant basically okay so there's one sommelier sitting at the table you approach them you offer your assistance in terms of the wine list i had to open a bottle of sparkling wine um, and then serve a flight of three wines um, that they had pre-selected that then basically I would offer a, a food pairing alongside what would go best. Mm. And then they quizzed me on beer, spirits, cocktails, all, all of the other things in terms okay. of beverage. So liqueur, all of these different components that are outside mm. of wine. So it's actually, it ends up being about 50-50 wine and everything else. Oh, fascinating. That was a question that I had. I was like, is, is this exclusively about wine or is there other liquors involved? Because they had sort of alluded to it in the Psalm movie that, mm-hmm. oh, the other liquors, but then nothing that wasn't really discussed after that time. So I was right. like, wait, were, did I mishear that? Or <laughs> <laughs> No, no, you're completely right. And I actually, I was surprised too of how much of my service, my service exam was actually taken up by other topics outside of wine. There was, they asked quite a few questions. It was about a 15 minute exam. So it was, you know, quite a few questions about wine, but also, you know, one, a good example is like name three anise based, um, liqueurs that you could serve as an aperitif. That was one of the questions. Okay. So you kind of just have to like dive into all of these different, you basically, I mean, this is why they almost require you to be in a restaurant because you have to deal with these things on a daily basis anyway. And so it's, it's basically just assessing your ability to communicate with guests well and to find people what they're looking for. And so it, it ex- definitely extends beyond wine. And at Beckon, too, I mean, the questions that we get about other things on the menu in terms of spirits and beer are also, and that's something that we should be proficient in and should be experts in if we're experts in on the wine side of things. Yeah, right. I mean, it sounds like you can't really do one without the other. No, definitely not. I wouldn't want to either. I find all alcohol fascinating and all even tea and coffee as well. I think it's a really cool thing to get into outside of wine. 
I mean, there's so many different flavors out there with, I mean, just fluids that we, you know, produce as human beings in the general sense, whether we're fermenting them or not. Right. Um, but yeah, the processes are, are fascinating. I mean, I've been drinking, you know, mushroom infused uh, teas and things of that I've nature. I've seen that. That's really interesting. Yeah. And I mean, there's a whole flavor profiles associated with that, but um, I digress. So you're you're having to learn about all these other types of liquor as well. So, I mean, are you needing to do blind tastings of these things also in the sommelier testing? Not necessarily. Um, so the, the following two levels after certified are advanced and masters. In the advanced exam, um, it is likely that you'll end up making cocktails and also kind of assessing spirits in a, in a analytical way, similarly to how you're assessing wine. They're not going to do a blind tasting with spirits, but okay. they could have you taste something. And this, this actually would, might be more geared towards the master exam, but they could put something in front of you and you would have to basically determine what it is. Um, if it's just one thing, and it's, it's usually during service that that would occur. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of information. Um, so much, yeah. <laughs> and, and then also understanding the regionality of these different things, right? Like that was one of the things that struck me in the, the Psalm movie is there, how, you know, granular they're having to get with identification of, Hey, this wine came from not only, you know, the North of France, but like this specific Valley within the North of France. Mm -hmm. Um, and I mean, so just the, the amount of academic knowledge required is, it seems massive. Yeah. I would always joke. I actually have joked around so much with previous teachers cause I always hated geography, like could not stand it, was so bad at it. And then I mm -hmm. realized like getting into wine, I was like, this is all about geography. <laughs> this is like so much about geography. You're like, and, damn it. <laughs> and now I'm like, I find myself like saying things to guests, you know, like talking about the history of certain regions, talking about the location and like relation to cities. And I'm like, okay, so now I understand it because I have context for it. And I like, I could basically tell you across the, you know, wine producing regions of the world generally where things are and even specifics within those regions. Um, outside of that, definitely not. So it definitely still shows my lack of geography <laughs> tendency, but um, wine is a good vehicle for it. And it, it is too, like, it seems very crazy to be pulling these things out of like thin air, you know, like this, I'm blind tasting this and I know this comes from this place. But once you kind of have an idea of the grapes that it could be, you start to narrow it down. And, and for blind tasting too, I should say that they can't just pull any wine in the world. They have a very specific set of regions. For the master's exam, it gets a little bit more loose, but you know, certified and um, advanced, there are very specific regions that are kind of classically produce these, these grapes okay. in different styles. So they're going to pull very classic examples so that you know, you're not having to determine things that are outside of what you've studied in terms of the character of the wine. That's nice of them. Yeah, it <laughs> helps a lot for sure. Yeah. So I'd like to talk a little bit about Greek wine because, um, you know, that's where you're from. That's the, the food that you are steeped in and the most. I mean, so you're, yeah. you're steeped in a lot of foods um, as, a, as a cook prior to becoming a sommelier. Um, so what can you tell us about the specific nature of Greek wines and their character, the, the grape types, all that different sort of stuff? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I, honestly, and I, I don't have too much exposure to them on a, on a daily basis. Greek wines are hard and I think they're entering our market more now, but in the, it's always been very hard in the United States for people to pronounce these grapes. A couple examples, we have Xenomavro, Agioritico, 
acirtico, like all of these things that are really tricky. And so I think it ter- sometimes turns people off, especially because these wines aren't showing up in restaurants and they're in wine shops, but they're not the things that are necessarily always highlighted. Um, so I, I have a couple of favorites. Aguaritico is beautiful. It's kind of, it's, it's a little bit more delicate. It's very herbaceous. Um, you have a lot of floral character to it. I think, you know, it's, it's, that one is, is great. It's very drinkable. Um, you have acirtico, which is really common on the island of Santorini. Um, and on that island, I mean, just like any other island wine, you have like kind of this volcanic soil. And so you get a lot of minerality with that. You get a lot of bright citrus. Um, it's, it's a very, you know, it's a high acid wine too. So you can, I like to pair that with grilled fish. That's where I'll go in terms of that pairing. And so you can find some really stunning examples, um, up North in Greece there, um, in Nemea, there are these mountains. So you get like a little bit more of that kind of Alpine character with the wines, a lot of red wines that are coming from there. What's Um, an Alpine character in a wine? So you basically kind of, you, what I think of it as an Alpine character first, because you're higher elevation, it's going to be colder, right? So you're going to get higher acidity. Mm. And so the, the wines are going to be a little bit fresher and brighter and lower in alcohol. So um, then you also tend to, I mean, it depends where you are, but like I tend to find you get a lot of herbaceous character from those wines too. You get like, I think of like wild field herbs, like these like beautiful, just like Mediterranean, like very light kind of herbs uh, and flowers and things that are likely growing kind of up there too. And, you know, you see this in a lot of Mediterranean wine regions specifically, if you get a lot of spice, you get a lot of herbaceous character, a lot of florals. Mm. Um, the Southern Rhone Valley of France is a great example of that. Fascinating. Yeah. Okay. So again, taking it back to the, the character of the grape. So it's something we talked about offline. You were, you were saying where it's really hard for the the vine to grow, you get better wines. And it, it sounds like that's because there's more nuance and more character to that wine versus a sort of just flat profile. Is that a correct understanding of how it tends to work? Yeah, so it's it's definitely a balancing act. And this is where like all the credit goes to the winemaker because, um, or to the, to the farmer behind it, whether or not they're the winemaker, um, because the farmers are controlling how much how much they're stressing their vines. And so one thing that they think about is yields. Do you want to, how close together are they planting these rows of vines? And so basically how many, how much of the nutrients in the soil are being distributed to one vine or another? Mm. Are they trying to plant them very, very close together so they have to fight for resources, potentially in regions where usually the vine is overproductive? That's where they might do that, right? Okay. So you're, you basically want to stress the vine just enough for it to produce, for it to work harder, to dig down deeper into the soil, to find further nutrients. Like that is where you find really, really great character and quality in wine. And so they, you know, if a good example is water, like you, you know, you don't want to water these grapes too much because they actually will become watery themselves. And then they're going to produce a wine that is watered down. It doesn't feel like it has concentration and character. Um, And kind of going back to the blind tasting, what we analyze, um, there's a good like I guess, thing called Blick, um, where it's balance, length, intensity, and complexity. Okay. That's what you look for in terms of quality in wine because, you you know, you look for how, how balanced are all of the components. So alcohol, acid, tannin, sugar, how, how are those balanced? Um, length, how long is that flavor kind of sticking around on your palate after you swallow the wine? Um, intensity, and, like, when you stick your nose in the glass and you taste it, like, how 
amplified are these flavors. And, you know, obviously it varies grape to grape of how they should be, how intense they should be. But for that varietal, for that expression, like how intense and, and beautiful and concentrated is this? Um, and then complexity. Are there more things going on than just fruit? You know, right. those are those are things you look for. And so it really a lot of it comes down to the winemaker and the wine that we're drinking right now. She works very naturally. So she's not using pesticides. She is working in a regenerative way with her with her soils where she's putting the life back into it. She's not, you know, she's not tilling. She's not doing all of these things that are damaging it at the end of the day and, and consequently producing wines that are of lower quality and lower flavor intensity. She's, she, her wines are so vibrant because she's letting them kind of have a life of their own. She's helping them just express naturally on their own. Sounds like wine and people have a lot of analogs. A lot of analogs. <laughs> Honestly, it's a great, it's a great way to compare. Yeah. The, those that have been through hardship tend to have more character. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. More layers, I guess. Um, and, and what's this winemaker's name again? Laura Lorenzo. Laura Lorenzo. Okay. And she's out of? So she's out of Galicia, Spain. Okay. Well, call out to you. This is a great wine. I'm really enjoying it. Good. I'm so glad. <laughs> um, thank you for sharing it with us. So um, what is what exactly is the nature of the climate in the region where this wine was grown it, and, and the nature of the soil and everything? I mean, uh, now that we've gone through and, and identified some of the flavors, for me to think back on what region and what kind of environment this wine grew up in would be probably useful. Yeah. So she, with this one, she has a lot of different bottlings. The region is, is kind of varied. So you have higher elevation points where there, you know, it's, it's a little bit mountainous. So you kind of have that like steep terraced um, vineyard that is, the soils are very rocky. That is this specific wine. That's where this is coming from. And so okay. um, it's a little bit cooler climate. And so the alcohol isn't naturally elevated. You have a lower kind of alcohol level that helps it be more drinkable. You know, like think of like drinking Cabernet Sauvignon from California on its own. It's like a little bit aggressive. It's like all of these things are happening. This one is <laughs> has elegance and it has finesse to it that can go alongside food or can be drunk very easily on its own. Um, and so that cooler climate helps. The soils are granitic, kind of like I was saying. So granite really helps preserve acidity because it's a, it's a colder soil. And so it helps cool the vines down too, you know, yeah. when they get a lot of sunlight, it helps them kind of retain that, that bright acidity. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. And, and you did tell me these things, but it is helpful for me to be totally. reminded. Totally. <laughs> um, but the, the region, so other parts of the region are more Mediterranean when you kind of get to like that lower elevation point, there's, it's a lot of productivity. It almost like, like so many other, it's important to think about like, they're not just growing grapes, right? They're growing all of these other things. Mm. And so a lot of flowers and it's important to have biodiversity within vineyards um, so that you're able to kind of keep that soil productive, keep those nutrients, like diversify the nutrients that the grapes are getting as well. Mm. Um, and so you see a lot of herbs, you see a lot of flowers grown kind of at the lower levels of these, of these regions. Fascinating. And, and this brings me to another question I was interested in asking you around other things that go into wine when they're making it? Like, are people using herbs and spices? Is that sort of passe in winemaking? Or is it kind of like, you know, do you just get the flavor out of the grape and what comes of that comes of it? That's exactly it. And I think it's important to think about because like, right, we're throwing around all of these crazy descriptors, but none of these things are actually coming into the wine at all. 
there are aromatized wines that are, you know, like different, like vermouth, they flavor those with like Genesian root, all of these different herbs and spices, like depends where you are. But with generally the wine that we see, like they're not flavoring it with anything. It's especially in Europe where the wine laws are very specific. You're not seeing really any permitted additives in a lot of regions like you even sulfur sometimes for so this woman is practicing organic she cannot use a ton of sulfur to you know affect the wine and sulfur is a thing that I think people have like this really negative connotation with but sulfur is really just partly a preservative so used in very small amounts it's used across the board in very small amounts obviously some of this like this whole natural wine movement is kind of coming into play and people want wines that are very funky and they're funky because there's not sulfur used <laughs> because it's not helping kind of the flavor, like mellow out the flavors, helping, you know, this wine express as, as elegantly as it could potentially. And I have obviously nothing against that style of wine, but I think it came about because people thought that sulfur was giving them hangovers. Oh, is that a misnomer? It is. I mean, when sulfur is used to like a, a very high extent, the, the extent to like, people generally are using it to like very, very small parts per million. Um, and that helps even to stabilize the wine. Um, but when you don't do the work in the vineyard, when you, so the bulk wine industry, people are using sulfur to correct their mistakes. Uh. And so in these, in this situation too, like you think about all of the time and care that it goes into farming grapes. And when you're working with bulk wine, when you're just trying to produce mass amounts, they're probably not paying attention to yields, to watering. They're probably just, you know, bringing in these grapes that have not been taken care of and then trying to correct their errors in the winemaking facility by adding sulfur, by adding additional sugar, tannin, like oak. Like you can add all these things artificially, but you don't see it at like high levels of winemaking or very small production winemaking typically because... There is some. There is a person behind the label. It's not just, you know, a mass-produced wine. In sure. in that way, you're more likely to find those additives that, you know, you you shouldn't be finding, but do because people want the wine to be as least expensive as as possible. <laughs> yeah, naturally, I guess. Uh, yeah. You know, high-end wines are expensive for a reason, right? Um, it, right, but it doesn't always necessarily mean that they have to be, right? Like certain wines, you need to put certain resources in to express like better so I mean there's a re and you know obviously there's politics that goes into it as well in terms of how wine is priced but um, I would say if you're looking for inexpensive wine look for regions where they're able to produce that wine inexpensively Champagne is not one of those regions Burgundy France is not one of those regions Bordeaux <laughs> is not one of those regions um, Napa you know has kind of become a region where you, you pretty much cannot find like very good cheap wine so like you see this California red blend thing kind of popping up everywhere right that if you're looking for an inexpensive red wine would not be where I would go for that um, you would go to different kind of regions where you probably most people haven't heard of these wines. Um, Mencia is a great grape that you can find for, you know, between 10 and $20 in really beautiful examples um, for white wine. Muscadet and the Loire Valley of France is a great example of something that's like, you know, it's, it's bright. It's kind of like Pinot Grigio-esque, but has a lot more character to it. And that is 10 to 15 to $20 bottle, a bottle in the wine shop. And those things... Like, honestly, really just look and see if the label appears like there is actually a person behind it and not a, a large corporation. <laughs> or, like, there's, like, some crazy animals on it. Like, sometimes that can be fun and that can be from a winemaker, but look for something that looks like it was made by someone real. 
Sure. I, I guess that's the nature of all artisan goods. They tend to be better than things that are mass produced, right? Right. Um, okay. So I'm curious if you have ambitions of going through and getting your master's in uh, this wine schooling process or if that's, I mean, it seems like that's a, a very intensive multi-year, you know, you know, takes all of your time sort of a process. So I'm just curious if that is something that's an ambition of yours or. Yeah. I mean, it's, I have been thinking about it a lot and it's, I'm not entirely decided on it. I, I'm definitely going for my advanced and that is, I'm currently studying for it, but master's is a level that I think, you know, it is a really expensive process to go through and take these tests. And so there's, you know, certain companies that will help along the way and, and provide scholarship, provide all of these different things to, to help you do that. And I realized after my certified exam, basically I had been studying from the time I was like, you know, mid, like 19 and a half to 21. And I, I took my intro exam the weekend of my 21st birthday and I took the certified a month after I turned 21. And so I was just like basically killing myself to do this. And the studying, it was an everyday thing. It had to be multiple hours a day to make this happen. And so I know for the master's exam, it would be that same thing. So mm-hmm. I think if I'm at a place after I do like hopefully pass my advance. If I'm at a place where I do want to pursue that, I think I, I will go for it because it, it opens a lot of doors, obviously. And I think that level of commitment and that level of training is really great. I think it, it would help me a lot in terms of discipline, in terms of like implementing all of these different you know practices in my life. But I don't think it's necessary to sure. be successful in this way position. Right, right. That makes sense. And, and which opens another question is, what is the career path generally of a sommelier? I mean, the average person, myself included, before I started looking into this was like, I have no idea like, what a sommelier yeah. does. I mean, are they like critiquing wine on a daily basis? Are they like, you know, people bringing them their bottles and be like, please bless this. And, <laughs> you know, or like, Zero star rating for you. Oh <laughs> no soup for you. <laughs> I love this. That yeah, that'd be hilarious if that were the reality. <laughs> we do drink a lot of wine on a daily basis for sure. But um, no, I so there you can kind of go into it a couple ways. You, I've gone through it the restaurant route, so that's a way that you can go. You can you know continue to work in restaurant programs and to you know be wine directors places. You can go and and shape these entire beverage programs. I think that route is super fun. Um, I would love to run my own program someday. Um, but you could also go the route of being a distributor or an importer. Um, and so we, in the restaurant setting, work with distributors. We work with probably, you know, five to ten distributors who we contact, you know, here and there. And we see they each represent different producers of wine. And so, um, and the importers essentially work with certain distributors in different regional areas. Um, I just know United States but um, that is how it works here. And so you have the importers who are actually going to the regions and choosing who they're representing. And then you, they work with distributors to distribute it out to restaurants, to wine shops, et cetera. Um, and so I know a couple people who have gone that route, gone the importing route mm-hmm. also. And you, you can start an importing company. You basically go out to whatever, if you were focusing regionally, if you're focusing on a specific style of wine that you're trying to represent, and then you just go choose it and find distributors to work with and, and make that happen from there. 
And so that's a cool way to go. Um, being a distributor is a cool way to go too, because you're able to, you basically have a lot of different accounts around different, whatever city you're in, and then you bring wines weekly. You are going out, you're bringing a bag of wine, you just contact all of the wine directors or someone in the different positions, and you say, hey, I have this in my bag, do you want to taste it? And so <laughs> um, that's what we do, you know, before we, we begin service in, in, in the restaurant between like one and, and for us, like 3.30. Sometimes we'll have tasting appointments that we'll, we'll try wines. And then we, for us, we change the wine so frequently on the pairing menu that it is honestly necessary to taste a lot. And we can go based off of, you know, or we can go based off of labels that we've really loved in the past and just look for those. But also tasting new things is really fun and very much necessary for us. Yeah, I mean, it's fun for me, too, you know, learning about these new wines and, you know, sitting in the restaurant and, like, having you bring out wines that I've never heard of that have this, like, you know, magnificent character. One of the wines that you had served to me, I, I don't know the name of it, but it, it was uh, a champagne that was so airy that it felt literally like air in my mouth. And so I, I wanted to ask you, like, what creates that in a champagne? Because, I mean... It, all of them are bubbly, but some of them, that one was like nothing like I had ever tasted. And, and I think, you know, listeners would probably like to understand the, the variance that exists there. Yeah, I think the first thing with sparkling wine to distinguish is that champagne has to come from the Champagne region of France. Okay. So champagne is only from that region. This is um, eastern France, pretty far north. Where it's it's very cold, and so if they, if you were to make still wine there, it would be extremely abrasive and not pleasant. Okay. And sparkling wine, it's it's necessary to have very high acidity, right? And so that's why they're making sparkling wine there. Mm. Um, and the practice in Champagne, um, they call it the traditional method or method champenois, basically undergoes a secondary fermentation in the bottle. So you have that first alcoholic fermentation where you're just making the still wine. And then they basically throw it back in the bottle with additional yeast and, and cap it. Oh, okay. And so then a secondary fermentation occurs where you have basically as a byproduct of, of the alcoholic fermentation, you have carbon dioxide. And so that's getting trapped in the bottle. Mm. And then because there's yeast in there and in the wine would be very cloudy if you were to just put it on the market like that, basically what they'll do is they'll, there's this process called riddling where they're, they're going to slowly kind of turn the bottle, like very, very small turns, like, they have machines now that can do it faster, but it used to take like basically a couple of weeks to do this, to turn weeks or months, you know, and it would turn it to a point where the yeast was all settled in the, in the neck of the bottle. Oh. And then they would freeze the neck of the bottle and open the cap so the, the ice with tr all of that trap yeast would shoot out and then they would re recap it. Fascinating. So you still have all of this carbon dioxide. So that secondary fermentation for all sparkling wine Essentially, either you're injecting it into a tank. It's some kind of secondary fermentation is happening in a controlled environment where you're getting carbon dioxide. That's a, that is a byproduct that's making it sparkling. Mm. So champagne is the highest level of sparkling wine, partially because, you know, because you can do this method anywhere in the world, but their soil and their climate is very unique. There's a lot of chalk that is just, it, it helps preserve a lot of freshness and brightness, and you just get this, like, razor sharp, thing going on that is is just so attractive and because they're doing the second fermentation just within each individual bottle you get basically more atmospheres of pressure and so you're getting that like like that airiness that's coming from additional co2 
Okay. So I, I think a good thing to compare it to is Prosecco. So this is northern Italy where they're making Prosecco, and they're doing the secondary fermentation in a tank, in a pressurized tank. Interesting. And then they bottle from there. So you're going to have less atmospheres of pressure. It's still going to be sparkling, but not to the, to the same grade as you would find in Champagne. Right, where you feel like it's you're drinking air, and that air has the flavor of wine. Yeah, um, totally. No, and I mean, and they can do a lot of things to soften to soften it. To a lot of people, a lot of producers put um, do, they call it dosage. So it's like basically a sugary liquid that goes back into the bottle to help tame that acidity. And so mm. you find like the the styles are like non-dosage. You basically have no additional sugar, so it's completely dry. And, and you kind of can like go, there's like, you know, brute, brute, you know, either extra brute, all of these different things that are like this whole scale of how much dosage is being added. So how many grams of sugar are being added okay. to do this. Very interesting. Yeah. And so yours was pretty low on that scale. So that's why it felt so just like bright and light and like airy because, you know, it didn't have as much of that, like that richness, and that texture in the form of, of sugar addition. Yeah. Probably why I liked it. I, I tend to prefer drier wines. Um, however, I, I think maybe that's also a misconception. Now that I've been trying some different types of wines, it seems like the reason I had this conception of sugary wines being like lower grade or something was just that I maybe it didn't feel as developed. But it sounds to me like there's actually, you know, if it's done correctly, the higher sugar is actually adding to the balance of the wine, right? It is, yeah. And I, th I mean, it's, it's all about context for sweeter wines. Um, and so I, a good a example that I love is like everyone drinks champagne with wedding cake. Sure. And it's the worst pairing in the world because <laughs> the food is so sweet and the wine is usually very dry. And so you basically, the wine tastes extremely bitter alongside that sweet food. So when you're pairing wine with food, especially in a dessert setting, you want the wine to be sweeter than the dessert. Mm. And so that's what we always look for. Dessert pairings are extremely difficult because there, there are a lot of styles out there, but it, it is really hard to determine whether it's going to fit that dessert well. And so we, as a, at a base level, either look for a wine that is the same level of sweetness as the, as the dessert or that's sweeter than the dessert so that the wine doesn't taste abrasive or bitter. That makes sense. Um, which I guess goes to why you called dessert wines, uh, you know, or the sweeter wines are the dessert wines in general, right? Right. That category can, you know, you have fortified wines where you're adding additional alcohol and, and it's going to be a more robust kind of style. And you find it in like Madeira and Port. And then you have like Sautern and Tokai, which are, are just sweet wines where basically they, like they call them late harvest. They let the, the grapes hang out in the vine for a really long time. So all the sugar is concentrated. Um, and, and at that point, when you do make the wine, you are leaving sugar behind and the alcohol levels are going to be on the lower side because they stop fermentation to a point where they're still leaving a lot of sugar mm. in those wines. Makes sense. Cool. Um, so if for you talking to someone, you know, or groups of people that are just not into wine in general, right They they, maybe they like wine they're um, they've tried this or that, they, they don't really understand it though. And they want to basically get into the world of wine. You brought up, you know, looking at this, 
chart that uh, the master uh, sommelier program has out there. What else like can people do to learn about wine, to you know get involved in figuring out how to not be a complete wine, uh, you know. I don't know what how to say it other than <laughs> you don't need to you don't need you know. to define that. <laughs> um, I would say the first thing I would do is is do that exercise I was talking about, where get your you know your lemon juice, your black tea, your shot of vodka, um, and your sugar water, and and try to just see how all of these different components, because these are the the structural components of wine. See how that is all hitting your palate, and then then look at wine in an analytical way, like you know pull that grid up. You don't have to go through it completely, and it is okay if it, it doesn't happen the first couple of times, but it's also just do this in a group, too. Like, it's a lot more fun with people. <laughs> um, but start to go, start to keep a journal of the wines that you taste. Um, first, kind of go through the different structural components and see, like, oh, okay, this is higher alcohol, and I like that or I don't like that. Is this wine balanced? Do I feel like something is, like, out of whack? Or, and at the end of the day, just determine whether or not you like the wine. That's what you should be writing down is, like, I love this. And then go back through the kind of what you determined to be structure, like what you determined in terms of, because you see the extremes in this first exercise of, you know, acid, sugar, tannin, and, um, and alcohol. And then you see, you know, okay, I like, I like higher acid wines or I like higher tannin wines. And obviously I, I would always advocate that there's a context for each of them. But <laughs> in terms of drinking in your daily life, like what are you looking for? Because everyone obviously has their different preferences. So um, in terms of resources I would use, though, is buy, buy the Wine Bible um, by Karen McNeil. That is an incredible resource because she basically, the, the couple introductory chapters are, are wonderful and because she goes through all of these things and, and how they come to be in wine, all the structural components, how climate plays into it, how um, winemaking plays into it. And then that helps set the scene for the rest of the book, which is looking at the major wine regions of the world. So you know, if you start to just kind of page through or if you see a wine on a list and you're like, huh, I wonder about that, just look it up in the book, see what is going on in the region, see what's going on with that grape um, specifically, and then kind of just go from there. I would just, you know, don't take it too seriously, too. I think... Have fun with it. We're drinking so much, wine at the end of the exactly. day. Exactly. And and definitely make that determination of I'm drinking wine to have fun versus I'm drinking wine to analyze it. And you can do both. You can start with one and then go to the other. Um, but I think it's important to just look at the wine the same way each time so that you're getting a really objective kind of standard for what you are tasting. Sure. Makes sense. Uh, thank you. Yeah. Something else I wanted to ask about is how cultures relate to alcohol and wine in the general sense. I think there's a lot of differentiation globally around this and how people relate to it. And it seems like there's a lot of history behind that and how cultures have kind of grown up with different types of alcohol and how it's used in, in their cultures. Um, and we were talking a little bit offline about sort of like the origin story of, of alcohol in general and how, you know, the Greeks uh, kind of disseminated uh, vines across Europe and all this. I mean, do you feel like the way that we relate to alcohol in the United States is kind of, I guess, bifurcated from our European roots in wine? And like, how would, if we were, you know, people from 300 years ago, be experiencing wine versus how we're experiencing it now or alcohol in the general sense? That's, it's such a great question. I, it, this is a topic that I am very passionate about because... I mean, obviously, I'm still in college, and I see alcohol consumed in 
not too positive of a way oftentimes. And I think just in our country in general, we, we see it as something that should be had on its own. We drink alcohol in, in, I mean, this doesn't apply to everyone, but generally in, in more of an abusive way. Like we, we drink just to drink. And, you know, the, we're, we're the patio pounder country. <laughs> and so in Europe, this, it's, it's rare that you see wine had on its own unless it's, you know, supposed to be kind of in that aperitif-like form. It, w- alcohol in general has kind of this sequence of events typically in European wine regions. It's on the table with things specifically because that's what it's supposed to be on the table with. And I think you can, like I, in my life, always kind of do that. I love to have, like, I, I think I probably consume more alcohol than the average person, but I do it in a very healthy way mm. where I'm having it alongside food. I'm having it for a specific purpose of, you know, if I go out, I'll likely start with a bottle of sparkling wine with whoever I'm, I'm you know, dining with and probably start with something that's like fried, something like fried small bite because that's just an incredible pairing. And because that's the lightest wine, the the brightest and the driest that you'll find um, to start. And then you kind of move on in the meal and either, you know, get wines by the glass or um, think, you know, share bottles with people that are on the table with things for a reason. And and I'll always look at food for that context, which is what they're doing in Europe because these things, that's, that's you know, that's what they had. Wine is a form of nourishment <laughs> and it, as similarly to food. And so you always saw those things together. And so even though in, I was reading something that, you know, I, I would have to, you know, go back and make sure, you know, check my sources more carefully, but that in Italy specifically, there is, such a high level of consumption for alcohol, so much higher than the United States, but the lowest levels of alcoholism, mm. recorded alcoholism versus the United States where it's kind of flipped in that way. And we do consume a lot of alcohol here in general, but it is more in a way that leads to diseases like alcoholism. And so I think it's interesting. I think when you start to appreciate the nuances of wine, it can help you have more of that healthy relationship with it and just see it in a specific context rather than drinking just to get drunk or drinking to to just you know drown away things it's more so in a in a form of enjoyment and company and I think we like drinking alone during the pandemic there was a really great article that came out and I'm forgetting where I read it but it's it's about how in the U.S. we tend to drink alone Mm. and that's not something that you see in Europe People are always with people drinking, and that's that's not like something that they really enjoy doing by themselves because it should be shared. It's something that, like food, you want to appreciate with company. So, that's I would say are, are some of the main differences in in modern day that have come about from long, you know, history in Europe and and shorter history here in the United States. Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, it, what you were talking about with drinking alone and this whole process of being isolated, I, I think that's a reflection of greater sociological trends that we have in the modern United States, which is pretty unfortunate. I mean, people are living very individualistic lives, you know, divorced from family and from close ties to people that they grew up with, right? And I mean, it's part of just having to operate in the modern world. People have to move for work. They have to move for this, for that. But, you know, it's not like human life used to be where you grew up with a family, you lived with that family for your entire life. You, you right. know, farmed the farm that they worked on. You did all these different things. And exactly. the, the people in the village that you grew up with, you knew them for your entire life. And so... Mm-hmm. 
what's really interesting to me about food and, and alcohol in the general sense is how we relate to it really seems to be a reflection of how we relate to each other and is like a mirror for that in a lot of ways. You know, it's like if we're sitting here eating like a TV dinner in front of, you know, a television uh, after a 12-hour day of work and we're not talking to our family members, right, it's kind of a reflection of our the state of our soul in a way. <laughs> I mean, and we work ourselves to death here is the thing, you know, it's like we, we, in the corporate world, like we end up living for our weekends. And at that point, we're trying to fit in all of these things that we don't get to experience on the day to day that potentially are more thoughtful in relation to food and wine and consumption in that way. And we're trying to just fit it into those two days that we have. And it, it tends to, I think, come out in an unhealthy way because of it. Yeah, that's it's fascinating how those things are linked. And yeah. I mean, something that came up when you were talking about wine and the attention to detail and just it's it seems like a practice, right? And it, it sounded like martial arts to me. I practiced martial <laughs> arts when I was younger. And, you know, it's like the process of getting your master's in, in uh, wine is also seems akin to getting a black belt, you know. It's like you have to cultivate yourself to a certain degree to be able to actually have the attention to detail in your life to be able to actually accomplish such a feat. Yeah. Um, and in that in that sense, I would actually love to highlight a mentor of mine, Zach Byers. So he was he was our wine director at Beckon, and he is currently studying for his master sommelier exam. Okay. Um, and when I first started working with him, he was studying for it, and his level of daily commitment to this is something that I was, I'm still blown away by where he, he is also a runner. So he goes on runs and he cycles through flashcards in his head while he does it. He has the most organized system for all of this. And I think relates to wine in a really humble way. Cause I think when you get to this level of kind of almost like competitiveness with wine, some people can take it in a very pretentious direction. Sure. Where you are like, I'm God, I know everything. (laughs) You know, I am a master of whatever. So, but ultimately no one can know everything about it. And I think Zach is just how he relates to guests on the floor as well as how he studies is just so humble and so committed. He doesn't skip days of anything. Mm. He, he doesn't give himself like that wiggle room to, to let up. He continues to push himself and it is so cool to see because that is exactly how I would want to approach it because he actually looks at it thoughtfully too. It's not just memorizing flashcards, even though you do have to memorize flashcards. It's understanding the regions, understanding the culture and the history and how it all comes together in a way that you can thoughtfully explain to guests and explain to your peers and people around you. And so that, I think, is a really great way to go about that level of things. Yeah, I mean, it seems like if you're going about life in that way, it's the it's the counterpoise to escapism, right? When you're yeah. really paying attention to every single nuance of this thing that you're trying to study and become the master of, you are you know, becoming more and more thoughtful and detailed. It, it was really interesting to hear you talk about how when you were studying at Beckin and or working it back in and coming home and you're, you know, the way that you were moving in your household was, you know, now a reflection of how you're moving in the restaurant. I mean, there really isn't like a, you know, a wall between us and our, the, what, how we conduct ourselves 
in one region of our lives that's bound to bleed over, right? It should. And I think it's hard because it, it unfortunately doesn't with a lot of professions. Um, and I think wine is one that definitely, I mean, restaurants are not the easiest places to work. It can get very exhausting. But I love it personally because I think that while I'm at work, it doesn't feel, it, it really doesn't feel like it. It feels like I am just, you know, performing these like really kind of specific service functions in a way that's creating a cool experience and environment for people, which is what I love to do at home anyway. I love to have a bunch of people over and just share and kind of conduct that experience. That's my favorite. And so being at work and being able to do that on the high level that Beckon allows is is really wonderful. Um, and so you're, I think you're totally spot on with it of like how we are at work and how we conduct ourselves, how we relate to other people, it should not be separate from how we relate in our own lives because we spend most of our time at work. I mean, a lot of us do. And even if you work from home, like you're still, you're still focusing in that way. You're still, you're still a person. You're still the same person. And so you, you know, you get a lot of practice being that person so that when you're, you are in your completely own time, I think you tend to kind of do the same things. Yeah, I mean, we're we're not waffles. We're we're pancakes as human beings. <laughs> right. A, a lot of bleed over the syrup tends to occur. Well, I mean, I want to just open the floor for you. Like, is there anything else that you want to share about your life or wine in general or things that you'd like to talk about while we're on air here? Yeah, I mean, I would I would just like to because I feel like I have this conversation with pretty much everyone who's just getting into wine in the first place, and I would say. Um, really take the pressure off yourself um, when it comes to wine. Don't think of it as this thing that is unattainable or all of this knowledge is something that you can't reach yourself. I think, you know, just try to have fun with it. Try to have fun with wine professionals that you interact with. And, you know, think of it, thought, think about wine in a more thoughtful way where, you know, you're, you want to, you want it to be a really healthy and really great part of your life. And so, I would, I would tell anyone getting into it, like really just dive into the wine Bible, you know, go do these fun exercises with friends, go to a, go to a wine tasting class and like interact with sommeliers because it's not as intimidating as it does seem, unfortunately. And I, I personally just hate the pretension surrounding it. That is my least favorite part of the wine industry is that people see sommeliers and, and wine professionals as, as people that are just, you can't even talk to. And like we have a lot of guests at Beckon, like you all who you guys drink wine, but you're like, oh, like this is such a crazy environment to be in right now. And like <laughs> I haven't had any of these wines, and so I don't really know. And and it, it is it freaks people out for sure to like experience it in a way and to kind of sit back and just like listen about all these things that you don't have context for. And and that's why I I would say like for for myself, I love to go about it in a way that is approachable, at whatever level people are at. I want people to experience it in a, in a way that's that they want to, and that is is really joyful and potentially educational. But if not, that's also okay, you know. <laughs> right, as long as you're having a good time, it, it yeah. all seems to make sense. Yeah. Um, well, I can say for myself, you've definitely illuminated my understanding of uh, the basics of wine. I think everyone else listening will feel the same. So I really highly appreciate you lending your knowledge to us. Um, you know, maybe we'll get lucky enough to have you on for maybe a more detailed discussion about certain specifics of different things, uh, because I, I know we have just barely scratched the surface <laughs> with a lot of things here. It always feels like that with wine. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> why is there miles more <laughs> to look at in this? Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, it seems like any topic that's worth exploring deeply has so many layers and, and wine certainly is that. So absolutely. You know, bow to you. Thank you so much for Thank your you time. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And uh you know, we will hopefully get to experience you know, some pairings of yours in the future. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll more, more to come. I hope so. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Thank you, Tia. Take care. And with that, Tia has left the building. Dang. Um, what an impressive human being, uh, a lot of knowledge. And I learned a lot from that conversation. Hope you guys did as well. And if you enjoyed the podcast, I encourage you guys to give us a like, give us a share. All that stuff really counts big time early in the podcast here. So really appreciate your guys' support. And we'll be bringing you new shows ideally every week. If you want to come on the show, let me know. If you have something interesting that you want to talk about, I am open to all sorts of conversations and all sorts of people. So please reach out to me, let me know, and and we'll get you on the show. All right, take care, everyone.